0: Father, as we come to Your Word today, Father, You are the everlasting God whose purposes are fulfilled, whose purposes begin in eternity past and will be fulfilled in eternity future. And Father, it is so difficult for us to sometimes see the forest for the trees. In our own lives, Lord, Things can seem so ordinary, and we fail to see in the moment sometimes how your plans and purposes are being fulfilled. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to give us a deeper understanding of you, a deeper understanding of your purposes, a deeper longing for your glory, and to glorify your Son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. We'll be looking at the second half of Genesis chapter 21 today. You know, a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they get the impression that God is a God who is constantly doing what is supernatural and spectacular and miraculous And in one sense, that's true. In one sense, that's true. I mean, the the very act of sustaining all of creation is nothing short of spectacular. If you think about how vast the universe is and the fact that if God were to stop sustaining it for one second, for one nanosecond, everything would fall apart. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty miraculous. It's pretty spectacular that He sustains all of creation. If, If you... Have a biblical understanding of salvation, you understand that every person who is born again, they're regenerated by the work of God. They go from death to life, and that's a miracle. For somebody who's dead to become alive is a miracle. So, in, in those senses, in, in that sense, God, yes, is doing the spectacular, He is doing the miraculous. But many in our day and age are. Apparently less than impressed with, with those types of things, and thus they, they seek out and they even fabricate the supernatural, the, 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 the miracles, the types of miracles that you might see in Scripture. So I'm talking about things like things appearing out of thin air. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about healings and things that just have no naturalistic or, or logical explanation. The movement that I'm speaking about, I'm also warning you about today. It's called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Some of you have heard of them. Most of you have undoubtedly been exposed to them, whether you realize it or not, whether through Christian radio or whatever. You've probably been exposed to them in one way or another. And one of the ways that this group is rising to prominence is through music. Through very good music, through, through really good playable music, they're writing a ton of good music and a lot of it is being played on so-called Christian radio. And I say so-called because if they were truly Christian, they would not be promoting groups like the New Apostolic Reformation. They would not be playing music that comes from this movement that's fabricating supernatural stuff. The New Apostolic Reformation is a cult. And one of the leaders of the movement leads a large church in Northern California where they've done things like drop feathers from the ceiling in the middle of a church service and claim that those are angels' feathers. One of the things they've done is they've piped smoke in through the ventilation system and they say, oh look, it's the glory cloud coming to visit us. It's smoke. They're fabricating miracles. This leader of this church in Northern California claims that Jesus was born as just a man and that he had to have a born-again experience just like we do before he became divine. And so ultimately what he's teaching is that we're the same as Jesus. That is damnable heresy. And he uses that premise to reach the conclusion that you and I are, perf- are capable of performing miracles just like Jesus did. In fact, he even reaches the conclusion that you can do miracles that are greater than Jesus did because you're just like Jesus. He taught God is in charge, but He's not in control. He's left us in control. That's a quote. God is in charge, but He's not in control. He's left us in control. End quote. Nonsense. That is nonsense. The leaders of the New Apostolic Reformation also deny the sufficiency of Scripture. They think it's crazy that there are churches that actually study the Bible. They encourage their followers instead to seek new revelation personally from God for themselves. Again, this group is a cult. Some of the things that they do, some of the things that they teach are downright heresy, You might even say demonic or satanic. And if you haven't heard of this new apostolic reformation group, you you do need to be aware of them. You need to be warned about them. You need to be cautious about them. They are very, very popular, and their popularity is growing by leaps and bounds. And you might ask, well, why are they growing? Why would a group like this that is obviously so fake Fabricating miracles, fabricating the supernatural, teaching heresy, why are they even growing? And I think that there's a very simple answer to that. And that is that people can become convinced that when God acts, it's just spectacular. It's like, it's like fireworks and stuff that defies the laws of physics. The problem with that, at least potentially, the problem with that is that we miss the way that God is working through just everyday normal, ordinary events. Think about your life. Think about how God is working through your life. Usually it's not by you walking. It's creating coffee out of a plane. It's not by you uh, doing supernatural things, creating coffee out of a plain cup of water, you know, things like that. No, you get up, you, you, you wake up, you get out of bed, you drink your coffee, you go to work, you come home you have dinner, you go to bed, and you repeat the same cycle over and over and over again. And so you might ask, where is God in the midst of all that ordinary stuff? The truth is, it is wicked. It is sinful. It is unnecessary to fabricate miracles. The fact is, if you don't see the miraculous you probably just need to adjust your vision. You need to look more closely. As God's people who are being used for the sake of accomplishing God's eternal and sovereign plans and purposes, the truth is that God is all over the place in the midst of your everyday, ordinary lives in ways that you might not see, in ways that you might not expect. And sometimes sometimes God will do something miraculous. You might see it. It'll be something that defies the odds or has no rational explanation, naturalistically anyway. But far, far more often, God is involved in just the very ordinary things of life. To put it more plainly, sometimes God's hand is visible when He's doing something crazy miraculous, like turning water into wine, but sometimes His hand is invisible And so as we continue in our study of Genesis today, we're going to see examples of both. We're going to see examples of God providing in a miraculous way, and we're going to see Him providing in a very ordinary, everyday type of way. So our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 21, verses 19 to 34. And the central theme of this passage is that God blesses and provides us with all that we need for the sake of accomplishing His purposes for us. Let me say it again. God blesses and provides us with all that we need for the sake of accomplishing His purposes for us. Now in the previous passage, a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that, uh, that Isaac was born and that God told Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael off into the desert wilderness. And Hagar reached the end of herself, the water supply that she left Abraham with ran out and so they are about to die she and Ishmael are about to die so she puts Ishmael under a bush and calls out to the Lord for help and God said to Hagar back in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 21 he said what troubles you Hagar fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation God had made that promise to Abraham, and now He's making it to Hagar. God had promised Abraham that He would see to it that Ishmael would be provided for, that he would be taken care of. And He makes the same promise to Hagar. But they're in the middle of the desert wilderness. They are out of water. They are out of hope. And this sets the stage for one instance of supernatural, miraculous provision. So we start with verses 19-21. to We read, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink and God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now if you're looking at this, with an anti-supernatural mindset, that is just a very scientific, naturalistic mindset, assuming that there is no God, you might say, well, this just looks like luck. Let me say this, first of all. There is no such thing as luck in a universe where God is completely sovereign over every molecule. Luck is not a Christian concept. But you might say, okay, so she just... It's a coincidence. She she just happened to, to run out of water, and she coincidentally happened to stop right next to a well of water that she initially didn't see. And I suppose that in, in one sense that would be maybe partially possible, but the text particularly, specifically ascribes this work to God. If he didn't cause the well to miraculously appear in the moment, he at least had to open Hagar's eyes in order to see this well. So He's at least the one who opened her eyes to see it, allowing her to see it. But I believe that this is, there's probably uh, an implication here that God also provided the will. The well. And few would deny that in this instance, we see God's visible hand. This is a case of miraculous provision. Supernatural. And when I say that, I mean that this isn't an ordinary, everyday kind of example of God blessing and providing and sustaining someone for the sake of advancing his eternal and sovereign purposes. So, you know, if, if you were to, uh, to test God and to go out into the wilderness without any water and reach the, the, the same point that Hagar did where she's about to die, there is no guarantee, there is no necessary likelihood, there's no promise of God doing the same for you. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. But let me at least say it would be really, really foolish to test God by doing such a thing. But Hagar isn't testing God. No, she really is down and out. She has no hope. She hasn't been seeking God. She hasn't been relying on God, at least not until she came to the point where she ran out of options, where her only hope was to call out to God for help. And so she comes to the point where God's miraculous providential blessing was the only thing that would save her. And that's what God does. He steps in and He provides her with something that only He was capable of supplying in the moment. So it wasn't Hagar's work. It wasn't Ishmael's work. It was God's sovereign blessing and providence. What a great lesson to learn there, right? So here's an example of God providing in a supernatural, spectacular, fireworks type of way. He had no obligation to provide, so why did He? Because He's God. Because He's God, and God can do whatever God wants to do. But specifically, we know that He had purposes and promises to be fulfilled, He was going to raise up Ishmael into this nation, a nation that exists to this very day, by the way. In case you guys don't know, Ishmael is the father of the modern-day Arabs. So this instance of divine blessing and providence is anything but normal or ordinary. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God does provide in amazing, supernatural, logic, and science-defying ways. And you might get to see that in your life you might not. I'll say this. The best way to see it is to be involved in a local body of, of, of Christians. Because somebody in there, everybody in there is being provided for, and sometimes God's going to provide in miraculous ways for somebody. I think of Christina. I think of, of Craig. You know, we've seen that in the last few years. We've seen God provide when there was no hope. We've seen it happen. So maybe the best way to see it, if you want to see something miraculous, is to be involved and active in a church. But you might see it. You might not. If you're in Christ, you will be provided for. But it might just be in ordinary ways. God is the fount of all blessings. He's the fount of providence for us. And He will never forget that every promise He's made, He will fulfill. And so let us not forget that every single breath is a blessing. It's a providential gift from God. It's unmerited. God will provide, and usually that will be through very ordinary ways. Very ordinary means. And if God blessing and providing for you and others in very ordinary means is something that doesn't catch your attention, if it's something that you even find boring, I'd say maybe you need a better, a stronger theology of providence. Providence. God blesses and provides us with all that we need for the sake of accomplishing His purposes for us and in us. And until His purposes are accomplished in us, we are immortal. We're immortal. Think about it. We can't die until God says, okay, this is your time. He he wrote and numbered our days from eternity according to Psalm chapter 139, verse 16. So, If that's true, if God numbered our days from eternity past, then no thing and nobody can leave this life one second before that or one second after that. And to accomplish his purposes in us, sometimes God might provide in extraordinary, abnormal ways, but more often, God provides in the ordinary. It's no less miraculous but it might be less obvious. Nevertheless, we should be no less grateful toward God for every single blessing and provision. For every breath. For every day. In the rest of our passage, we're going to see an everyday, very ordinary business transaction take place between Abraham and Abimelech. And keep in mind that whenever you read Scripture, especially when you're reading historical narrative, one of the questions... Two of the questions that you should really be asking yourself is, number one, where's God in this passage? And number two, why did the author include this? Because it's there to teach us something. So why did the author include this? Considering the fact that at any given moment, there are billions of solitary events going on around the world simultaneously. But the author, ultimately the Holy Spirit, gives us this. So why? Why? I'm convinced that the passage that follows has been placed in Holy Scripture in order to provide for us a contrast. We just saw God provide a well supernaturally, miraculously, for Hagar and Ishmael, but now we'll see God provide a well for Abraham in a very non-spectacular, very ordinary type of way. So let's look at verses 22-34. to We read, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, "'I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today.' So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, "'What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart?' He said, These seven you lambs will take from my, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now we've seen kind of over and over again over the course of the last 11 chapters or so that we've been studying Abraham's life that Abraham had fears. Fears that tempted him and maybe even to to some degree you would say it inclined him toward taking matters into his own hands. Rather than trusting in the Lord, he would try to work things out on his own by his own ability. And it was always trouble. This weakness that he had caused him to do something that we've seen two times. It was a repeat type of sin. There was a pattern of, of sin in his life where he would go before a king and he'd say, "My wa- this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And, his, and Sarah, his, his wife, would be taken in by the king. And the reason that Abraham did this is because he was afraid that if people knew that she was his wife, they would surely kill him. So what's he doing in those moments? He's trusting in himself rather than trusting in God. And both times, God worked things out to do two things. Number one, to confront Abraham and his sin. And number two, to preserve his life. And so this passage right here that we're looking at today, this passage shows us just this ordinary transaction that takes place between Abraham and Abimelech. And if you'll remember, Abimelech was one of the kings that Abraham had lied to. Not only did he lie to him, but he slandered him. He told him to his face, when I came to this place, the reason I lied is because I could see that it was obvious that you had no fear of God. When the truth was that Abraham was the one with no fear of God. And Abimelech did have a fear of God. So this this weakness had played out a couple times. He was afraid that people were going to kill him. Both times, God worked things out and preserved his life. It shows us this crazy ordinary transaction so where is god in this passage there's the there's one of the questions we want to be asking in this passage where is god he's there he's present he's right in the midst of all of it he's causing all things to work out according to his sovereign and eternal purposes and because god is sovereign abraham and his future is secure so not only does God see to it that no man can take Abraham's wife from him, but God also provides a well for Abraham. You know, one of, the, one of the foundational principles of the Christian faith is that God is sovereign over life and death. And that was a principle that Abraham had to learn, and that's a principle that we have to learn too. That God is sovereign over life and death. Nothing happens outside of His eternal sovereign decree. Now, I don't know if anyone is a better example of this than the Apostle John. If you guys know the history, the story of his life and where it went toward the end of the first century, when he wrote the book of Revelation around 90 AD, he'd been exiled to Patmos Island. And according to ancient church tradition, John was the only reason that he was there. The only reason that that he had been sent out there, exiled to this island, is because they were unable to kill him. It's said that he was arrested in the city of Ephesus and he was sentenced to die a very cruel and unusual death, a martyr's death. He was going to be cast into a vat of boiling oil. I can't think of a more painful way to die. But the oil didn't phase him. It, it was like nothing happened. It, it should have killed him. It would have killed anybody else, you would think, in a very painful manner. But it didn't even leave a mark on him. Now you would think that if you were there, let's say that you were one of the authorities in charge. Maybe you were even the one who sentenced him to die in a vat of boiling oil. You would think that seeing him walk away from that unscathed would, would convert you on the spot. I mean, how much more evidence do you need that what this guy is saying is true? God is with this guy, but that's not what happened. Instead, he came out unscathed, and they didn't give up on, him, on, on getting rid of him. They instead sent him off to work in the slave mines on Patmos Island. So why did he survive? Because God wasn't done with them. Because God is sovereign over life and death. In fact it was on the island of Patmos that Jesus appeared to John and John was instructed to write the book of Revelation. And legend has it that John was finally set free in the land that's now known as modern-day Turkey where he died around 98 AD. That's a fascinating piece of history. And yes, to some extent, we we take it with a grain of salt because none of that is recorded in Scripture, but historians, by and large, tend to lean more favorably toward that historical account of his death than any other. John was apparently the only apostle out of all of them who died in his age of natural causes, as we'd say. So why was he spared when the other apostles were murdered and martyred in brutal, brutal ways? Because that's the way God designed it. Because God wasn't done with John when he was in the vat of boiling oil. And in the same way, friends, one of the reasons we don't need to fear death is because God is sovereign over it. He's got His eyes on every one of His children. And He provides for us and He sustains us in sometimes miraculous ways and more often in very ordinary ways. That's why Jesus said, Are are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's from Matthew chapter 10, verses 29-31. to So here Jesus goes with a how much more type of argument. If this, then how much more that? And Jesus commonly used this when he taught. He's saying if God is aware of and sovereign over the fate of these very common, you know, practically worthless birds like, like sparrows, how much more does he value human beings who, unlike sparrows, are created in his image? And more than that, How much more does He care for His own children whom He sent His own Son to ransom and redeem? And so Jesus encourages us not to fear because we should know, we can know that God is sovereign over life and death. And Abraham had to learn that principle over and over and over again. He's still kind of learning that principle. And it's a principle that we need to learn as well. God is with us, God is providing for us, and we cannot die until the days He's written for us in eternity have expired. Not a second earlier, not a second later. But God's not only sovereign over life and death, He also provides for the physical needs of His children. And that's what we see in this negotiation that takes place between Abraham and King Abimelech providing for physical needs it's kind of shocking if you think about it that abimelech has not sought abraham out for the sake of exacting revenge he's not out for him because he lied to him and he brought this disease into his camp he's not out to 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 seek him out for any of that type of stuff that's that's probably what we might expect but that's not what abimelech is there to do we we couldn't blame him if he if he hated abraham's guts or if he criticized Abraham for being just another religious hypocrite who who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. But instead, it appears that Abimelech shows up simply for the sake of becoming friends with Abraham. Simply for the sake of becoming more acquainted with Abraham. With Abraham and so he starts out by just making an observation about what he sees in Abraham's life he says God is with you in all that you do let me ask you this when the world looks at your life could they say the same thing would they be able to make a similar observation of your life I know that it is far easier to just blend in with the culture. To be, to be what I would call a Christian chameleon, so to speak. In the sense that you, you look just like the culture. You act just like the culture. You think just like the culture. And so ultimately, you're no different than the culture. That's easier. But friends, if you are in Christ, you are not called to blend in with the culture. You're not called to love and value and cherish and aspire to the things that the culture does. You're not called to love what the culture loves. You're not called to affirm what the culture affirms. You're not called to value what the culture values. You're not called to think like the culture thinks or act like the culture acts. No, all of these things would be contrary to what God has for you, but they would be perfectly in line with what Satan would have for you. Abimelech sees that Abraham is very different. Even though Abraham lied to him, he sees that God is with Abraham in all that he does. He's seen God's discipline in Abraham's life. He's even seen God reprove Abraham. In fact, God used Abimelech for that very purpose in Abraham's life. But Abimelech has apparently also seen Abraham prosper, but without being a swindler, without being a swindling businessman like everyone else around him. And so Abimelech shows up just to kind of clear the air with Abraham, so to speak. And all he asks of Abraham is that Abraham, and we can't blame him for asking this, he just asks that Abraham deal honestly with him, unlike he had before. And Abraham vows, he, he, he swears to be honest. And this is where it starts to get interesting. Because Abimelech and Abraham are now at peace with one another, almost, almost. Almost, that's, that's their goal. They've, they've kind of established already that this is their goal, to, to be at peace with each other. But Abraham uses the opportunity to reprove, to, to confront, to, to at least bring to Abimelech's attention an incident involving a well that Abraham had dug. See, the first thing we saw is that the two men established their goal, peace, with each other. But without justice, there cannot be true peace. And so Abraham brings up an issue of injustice. They're they're aiming for peace, but there's one thing that's in the way, and that is this injustice. An incident in which some of Abimelech's men came and seized a well that rightfully belonged to Abraham. You know, to this day, if you are out in this region where, where they are, the single most important resource... For surviving in, the, in this desert wilderness is water. So this wasn't just like a misdemeanor, no, no big deal type of thing. No, water was a matter and is a matter of life and death. And so Abraham brings it up because without justice there can be no peace. And Abimelech's response is basically to say, hey, this is, this is news to me. He, he denies any, any previous awareness or knowledge of this incident, and there's really no reason to doubt him in this matter. And so how do they settle it? How do they settle this, this injustice that ultimately you could, you could boil down to attempted murder? The two men enter into this covenant, whereby Abraham is guaranteed possession of the well that Abraham dug. Now this isn't his land. This is Abimelech's land, technically. Abimelech has given him, if you'll remember at the end of chapter 20, he gave him permission to sojourn and to dwell in the land. But Abimelech is technically the one who, who owns this land, but Abraham's the one who dug the will. But the well, but here, here's the beauty of this covenant that they come up with. Abimelech had said back in verse 23 that he wanted his dealings with Abraham to apply not just to himself, but also to his descendants, to his posterity. And so this covenant, which guaranteed a water source for Abraham, would also guarantee a water source for Abraham's offspring, for Isaac. And so in this way, God was not only providing life-sustaining water for Abraham, but God was providing for Isaac as well and it all just seems so ordinary it just seems like a regular business transaction a regular business agreement that these two guys come to on their own you know most of us probably don't really know what it means to truly want or need we have a land we have a country where we have an abundance of stuff. So much stuff. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, but what I fear is that we would think that we don't need to pray for our daily bread because we already know where it's coming from. We already know where our next meal is coming from. In fact, we have all of our meals for the week planned out and stocked up, supplied. But what, do I, what I want to encourage you to do today is to see that what you have is what God has given you. And it might just look ordinary and mundane. You might say, well, I, I worked hard. I earned a paycheck. And I used the money that I earned to buy food for and, and, and uh, you know the resources that I need to survive. I bought all this stuff for myself. But the truth is, no, this is what God has given you. He's the one that kept you breathing to work. He's the one that provided the food. He's the one that has provided you with everything that you have, even when it looks ordinary and mundane. But you got to understand that what God has given you, He's given you for the sake of not only sustaining you, not only providing for you, but He's also given you what He's given you for the sake of accomplishing His purposes in your life. God is there in the ordinary. Sometimes He provides for His people in the spectacular. But more frequently, far more often, God is providing in the ordinary, everyday things that we do. And I know that it might not seem like it, but Abraham lived really a pretty boring life. If you think about it, Moses, who, who wrote Genesis, Moses is just giving us the high points of his life. All, all the, the, the really exciting stuff. We're, we're seeing the, the top level, the, the tip of the iceberg, but we're not seeing everything else that goes on in, in his life. No, most days, Abraham would get up and he'd go about his daily business he'd have breakfast he'd go tend some sheep and you know do do what he does every day and it was just very very ordinary on most days he lived a very simple ordinary life every now and then something exciting or miraculous would happen but i mean if you think about it we've covered 30 years roughly of abraham's life and we've only seen a small handful of truly miraculous things so do you see God's hand at work in the ordinary things of your life. Sometimes His hand is visible and it's plain as day that this is God. And sometimes it's invisible. Sometimes it's just ordinary and mundane. And that might be something that you need to spend more time thinking about, more time meditating on, but God is behind so many things that just seem so ordinary to us. Every breath is a gift from God. Every day is a reminder that God is not done with you. Every time someone turns from their sin, it's a miracle. If we were left to our own devices and our own ways, nobody would turn from their sin. Nobody would seek God. Every time somebody repents and believes in Christ, it is the work of God's own hand. It is anything but ordinary. Every time you read the Bible and you're able to correctly understand it and apply it to your life so that you're growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in godly, holy virtue. That is an act of God. Because without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you might be able to know what the Bible says, but you would think that it's all foolishness. So if you want to see something extraordinary, if you want to see something miraculous, read the Bible evangelize confess and repent of your sin these things are all miraculous these things are all completely supernatural and they wouldn't happen if it were just left up to us i know that if i want to see something supernatural i don't need to put feathers up in the ceiling and release them during the service and fabricate some kind of of miracle or you know do that kind of silly stuff, if I want to see something miraculous, all I need to do is preach the Gospel and watch God use it to change the lives of people, including myself. And I have. I have. I've I've had a front row to see some, some very amazing things. Abraham, for the most part, like all of us, lived a very plain, very ordinary life He wasn't using his coat like a laser sword, pretending like he was using the Holy Spirit to slay people in the Spirit. He wasn't going around begging people for 60 plus million dollars for the sake of having a top of the line private jet that he would use to bring him to speaking engagements around the world where he wouldn't preach the gospel, but he'd just make people want to be rich. He wasn't gathering a following by offering a positive alternative message that makes people feel good about themselves, but leaves them dead in their sin. He was living just a simple, ordinary, God-honoring life in which he was learning more and more to walk in faith and obedience unto God. And that is what drew Abimelech's attention to him. Friends, make no mistake about it. Even if, if your life, like Abraham's, like mine, seems ordinary, know that people are watching. Know that the world around you, the culture around you, is making notes about you. They're, 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 they're looking at your life. And if you are living for Christ, if you are living for the glory of Christ, they know that you don't share their values. They know that you don't affirm what they affirm, that you don't love the things that they love. As Christians, we're instructed to do all things for the glory of God, but the world, they've got a different motivation. Their motivation is completely opposite, they're doing it for themselves. And so the question that I I want you to think about, go go home and and think about today, is this, are are you different enough from the world that somebody notices? That the world sees you and sees that you're different? Would the world say, God is with this man, or this woman, or this boy, or this girl? Would, Would the world say that? Based on what they see in your life, based on the way you treat others, based on the way that you do your job, based on the way that you love your kids, based on the way that you act when you think nobody is watching, based on the priorities and the values that they see in your life. Because the truth is, they are watching. They are watching. They're watching your priorities, they're watching your actions, they're watching your words. They're watching the things that you value. And maybe that makes you cringe. Makes me cringe a little bit when I think about it. But really, you shouldn't be uncomfortable with it. There are two things that being uncomfortable with this imperfection that we all have can cause somebody to do. Two things that we we don't want to do. Two wrong ways to deal with with your imperfections. First, some people will try to, to polish up their lives before people. You know, kind of like a car dealership. Oh, there's a ding on the bumper. Let's put some extra polish on it. There's a scratch over here. Let's put a cheap coat of paint on it. And there you go. Looks, looks brand new. And some people do that with their lives. You know, they'll put on an act when they're in front of others. They, they, they come to, to church and they'll speak Christianese when the reality is, yeah, that the, the faith isn't a reality to them. Don't do that. Don't do that. Listen, you you know as well as I do that the truth is people can see right through that. Parents, we know that our kids can see right through every facade. And the world's no different. If we're putting on an act, somewhere along the line, they will see there's an inconsistency here. They'll make note of that. And when they do, they'll just use your life to support their preconceived notion that Christians, man, they're just a bunch of lying hypocrites. And we don't want that. So that's, that's not a way to, to respond to the discomfort that you feel at being imperfect. The other wrong way to deal with it is to conclude that because you're so imperfect, you, you better not let anybody know that you're a Christian. Because you don't want people to be aware of the fact that Christians struggle with sin too. Now, struggle is the key word there. I would say that if if there's not a struggle going on in you, you might want to be careful about the way that you express your faith if you're not even struggling with sin. At least until your mind changes. But this is no good either, is it? To be quiet until you get your sin under control? Because the truth is, you're going to be a sinner until... The day you stand before Christ and you become like Him because of His work, because of His doing. Because Jesus did say in Luke 11.33, He said, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. This is what He's saying not to do. He's saying don't be quiet. Yes, we all have imperfections, but that's not a justification for being silent about your faith. No, if you're hiding your faith, you are resisting God's work in your life and you're finding a way to avoid bearing witness for Christ. And that's no good either. So polishing up and prettying up your life isn't an option. Being silent isn't an option. So what is an imperfect person supposed to do? To some extent, you've got to be transparent with the world. You've got to be be honest with the world. Don't don't pretend to be perfect. That's just moralism. That's, That's not legitimate. No, you've got to be willing to let people see your imperfections, to an extent at least. You've got to let them see your imperfections, but they also must see you dealing with your imperfections. Abimelech saw that Abraham was a very flawed man. But when Abraham was called out on his imperfections, back in chapter 20, he confessed that he and Sarah had been pulling off the same old lies since they first started walking with God, when God first called them out of Ur of the Chaldeans. On top of that, you might remember that at the end of chapter 20, Abraham also prayed for Abimelech. After they had their their confrontation where Abraham was called out for his sin, Abraham prayed for Abimelech. And Abimelech and his people were healed of a disease. So this chapter, this passage ends with God going by a new name. A name that we haven't seen yet in all of Scripture. Everlasting God. This is the first time it appears. That's the first time God is referred to by that name. And it reflects the fact that even at over a hundred years of age, Abraham was continuing to grow in his understanding of God, in his walk with God. And that, if nothing else, is a testimony to the world around him. So why does Abraham plant this tree? It's because he recognized that this very ordinary, very mundane Agreement that he had come to with Abimelech was actually a gift from God. It looked so ordinary. It didn't look spectacular or miraculous, but actually it was God's providence unto him and his posterity and his his descendants. And so he realized something very important, and that is that with God, even the ordinary is miraculous. Even the ordinary is supernatural. So do you see God's providence in the ordinary aspects of your life? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God sent His only Son to live a perfect, sinless life and to take our sin upon Himself in His death, removing it from us, imputing it to Christ, and replacing it with His own perfect righteousness? Do you believe that our unrighteousness was imputed to Christ and His righteousness was imputed to us? If your answer is no, I would say you need to understand what your greatest need is. Your greatest need is for somebody to reconcile you with God. And God provided that in a miraculous, spectacular way by sending his own son into the world and to take the sins of unrighteous sinners upon himself and to replace that with robes of righteousness. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. But if your answer is yes, then know this. Three things. And we'll end with this. Three things. First of all, know that your faith in and of itself is a miracle. The fact that you believe is supernatural. You would not believe any of these things if God did not impart the gift of faith to you. Secondly, see that the faithful provision of God in providing the spotless lamb, the perfect Savior, the perfect substitute in your place, meets your greatest need. And last but not least, know that as you grow in faith, as you grow in obedience unto God, He is providing for you. He is using you, flaws and all, in ordinary ways, in everyday things of life, all for the sake of accomplishing His purposes in you and through you. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand before You thankful for Your Word. Thankful for the convicting power of Your Word. Thankful for the way that it reproves us and corrects us and trains us for righteousness. And so we thank You, Lord, as we consider this passage. We thank You for the very ordinary ways that you provide for us, the things that we take for granted because they just seem so mundane. We thank you for providing for us, and especially for providing for our greatest need, being reconciled unto you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would train us to see your provision in our lives, that we would lead gracious, grateful, thankful lives for the glory of Christ, our greatest need, our sustainer. And so we pray these things in His name and for His glory.